From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, Christmas may be coming up next weekend, but Hanukkah has already begun. We learn about some of the exciting events to celebrate the Festival of Lights in Louisiana. Plus, it's almost time for Kwanzaa. And the New Orleans Public Library is offering a series of celebrations for the cultural holiday. But first... Thousands of Cameroonians have flocked to the U.S. in recent years to seek asylum. Many are fleeing a brutal conflict that erupted in 2017. Some of them were sent to a part of the Deep South, where detention centers were rapidly expanding and a wave of conservative immigration judges had just taken the bench. Gulf States newsroom reporter Bobby Jean Missick spent a year investigating their experiences as part of a fellowship with Type Investigations. To launch a series about her reporting, she talked with Cody Short of WBHM in Birmingham. Bobby, when I think about immigration, I'm usually thinking about the Texas or California borders. But you were looking at what's happening in Louisiana and Mississippi away from any border. Right. So Louisiana has the second largest population of detained immigrants in the country. Typically, immigrants who are sent to the region first go to Mississippi for an initial screening, and then they're transferred to Louisiana, where the immigration courts are located. But the judges in these courts have rarely sided with immigrants in recent years. What I found in my investigation is that immigrants from Cameroon, a country in Central Africa, who ended up in Louisiana courts between 2016 and 2021, had higher barriers to asylum than in other parts of the country. I collected hundreds of federal court documents from people living in detention in Louisiana. Dozens were from Cameroonians. And in those documents, some of them said their lives would be in danger if they were returned to Cameroon. So tell us what you've learned about the crisis in Cameroon. What were they fleeing from? So to explain how we got to this moment, we need to do a brief history lesson. Cameroon has two parts, a French-speaking side and a much smaller English-speaking side. I interviewed Fabrice Bidpua. He's a former college student who came to the U.S. to seek asylum. He says people from the French side of Cameroon had better lives. In my country, just being able to speak French gives you an advantage over the other person in so many things. Fabrice says that economic opportunities are more often built on the French side. So the system just seemed rigged against English speakers like him. The language divide came to a head in 2016. English-speaking Cameroonians, particularly lawyers and teachers, began to hold peaceful protests against the heavy influence of French. And the government responded with violence. The military hijacking the demonstrations, tear gassing them, shooting. And according to Fabrice, that former student, when government security forces started shooting people, some people fought back. It was just pointless for them to sit and die without, you know, you got to fight before you die. You don't just the to. government's clamp down on protests silences the more moderate voices in the movement, making room for more radical voices, people who want English-speaking Cameroon to be its own country. These people, identified as separatists, 
take up arms against government forces. And as the fight goes on, you start seeing human rights abuses on both sides. And by 2018, Fabrice and other students went out to protest. He says they carried plants and green fabrics to show the government that they came in peace. That's when he started getting arrested. He says he was arrested three times, and the third time, police were transporting him and others at night, and the separatists attacked. But he escaped. And I started running. I didn't even know the direction I was running to because it was dark. So I'm just running in the bush, going and going and going. Fabrizio was eventually able to leave. His mother paid for his travel out of the country. So this is where your investigation really picks up, Bobby. You looked at what happens when Fabrizio and many other Cameroonians end up on America's doorstep looking for protection. Yes, my investigation is not so concerned with how Cameroonians ended up in the U.S., except to say that many of them seem to have good claims to asylum based on the conflict in Cameroon. And the way people like Fabrice say they were targeted by the government's forces. When you look at the numbers in recent years, Cameroonians actually have very high asylum grant rates compared to the national average overall. That suggests that many immigration judges were convinced Cameroonians had strong cases for protection. But what I found in my investigation is Cameroonians like Fabrizio had lower chances of success with their asylum claims in Louisiana courts. So you just laid out the violence they escaped in Cameroon. What was going on with the immigration system once they actually got to Mississippi and Louisiana? So for this investigation, I looked at court data from the past several years, and I found that Louisiana immigration judges rarely sided with asylum seekers of any kind. Between 2016 and 2021, we see an asylum grant rate of 64% nationally. In Louisiana, it was around 12 Just 12%? Yeah. So the success rates for Cameroonians who went through those Louisiana courts were just much lower than their country folk who applied in other parts of the U.S. And that's perplexing. Yeah, that is perplexing. And I know we'll hear more about the reasons why in your series, but there was some big news and maybe some hope this past spring. The Biden administration granted Cameroonians living in the U.S. temporary protected status. Right. And that's a designation that's given to people whose country is too dangerous to return to. So the Biden administration is also saying, hey, we acknowledge that you are not safe if you return to Cameroon. We're going to let you stay here without any fear of deportation for at least a year and a half. But before the federal government made that decision, Louisiana immigration judges just often failed to acknowledge that danger. Bobby Jean, thank you for your reporting and tackling this very complex issue. Yeah, Cody, thanks for letting me share. That was the Gulf States Newsroom's Bobby Jean Missick talking with WBHM's Cody Short. 
Tune in to Louisiana Considered tomorrow to hear the next part of her series with type investigations and the story of the hurdles Cameroonian asylum seekers faced in Louisiana courts. The holiday season is upon us, and while many people like to pair Kwanzaa with Hanukkah or Christmas, while the latter two are religious holidays, Kwanzaa is a cultural one. The annual celebration of African-American culture began in the 1960s and lasts from December 26th through January 1st. And in Louisiana, there are plenty of ways to celebrate the occasion. Here to tell us more about Kwanzaa history and how to observe the holiday this year is Shakrani Gray, the African-American Resource Collection Equity and Inclusion Librarian at the New Orleans Public Library. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Now, Kwanzaa was first created by activist Milana Karinga in 1966. Can you tell us a little bit about how the celebration was first established? What inspired it? What were the early celebrations like? So I will start out by saying I am one of those rare people who have never celebrated Christmas. I, for my entire life, have celebrated Kwanzaa. So um, I was lucky enough to be a part of the excitement of Kwanzaa when it first started. And I was a little kid, but um, in the early 70s and the 60s, you know, um, it was the beginning of what is now known as the Afrocentric movement, which came out of, you know, the civil rights movement, um, the Black Power movement. And so there was a, a segment of people who wanted to express a connection to their African roots. The, holiday of Kwanzaa was created. And, you know, some of the criticism is that, oh, it's not a um, an actual traditional African holiday, which is true. It is not. It's a conglomerate of symbols um, that were used back in, in, in the 70s to kind of connect us to an idea of our historical uh, background. So they the language that the Nguzo Saba, which are the seven, well, people call them the seven principles, but they are actually the seven principles of Blackness. And so the language is Swahili, which is actually East Africa, <laughs> not West Africa, which is where most of the enslaved Africans came from. But it was just an effort because, you know, back in the day, we were stripped of our history. And so this was our effort to reclaim that history. Originally, um, the way we celebrated was that during the week tw from the 26th to the 1st, we would go to each other's houses and groups of families would celebrate together. Um, and then the, the last celebration was the citywide. Yeah, tell us some more about the, the African traditions that are incorporated in this holiday. I know it's created in the United States, but the word Kwanzaa itself is derived from the phrase Matunda Ya Kwanzaa, which means first fruits in Swahili. It is a harvest holiday. So it's it's created around the idea of working throughout the year and then harvesting at the end of the year. You have the symbols of Kwanzaa. So we have the Mkeka, which is the straw mat, and that represents the earth. So that's like the, the farming aspect of it. Um, then you have 
uh, the Canara, which has the seven candles and you have three red, you have three green, and then you have one black. And so the red, black, and green represents the blood that we shed, um, the black that represents our skin, and the green that represents the land that we harvest. So we also have on there the corn, um, and the corn represents fertility. It represents, you know, family and, and, you know, financial fertility, like all of that was represented in the corn. Back in the day, we had a unity cup and um, we would share, everybody would like sip from the unity cup representing that we are all family. Now we don't do that anymore since COVID, but <laughs> those were the key elements of the um, celebration that brought us together as a family and a community. Shakrani, you, you've never, you know, celebrated Christmas. That Kwanzaa has always been a part of of your your celebration in, in December. What's the story behind that? How did that come to be in your family? What did your family tell you about why Kwanzaa? That's that's what we celebrate in December. Well. Um, like I said, it's part of a larger movement. So my parents were instrumental in one of the first uh, Afrocentric schools in Chicago um, called Shule Yawatoto School for Children. And so Kwanzaa was like our end of the year school, like big deal. Um, and so it was all a part of a lifestyle. And so Kwanzaa to me, like people, people would, when I was younger would say, oh my God, you, you don't celebrate Christmas. What are you going to do? And, and I, I had this whole full life wrapped around Kwanzaa because I had a community that I, I dealt with all the kids that I knew celebrated Kwanzaa. And we had people who, and so I wanted to um, add, cause you did state it, it's not a religious holiday. It is a cultural holiday. And so you had people who celebrated Christmas and who celebrated Kwanzaa because they don't clash. Well, community, family, it's a, it's a central to, to the celebration of, of Kwanzaa. And it seems there are plenty of ways to celebrate the holiday there in New Orleans. I understand you're putting on an event uh, for the first day of Kwanzaa, December 26th. What do you have planned for that? So we at the AARC, the African American Resource Collection, are having a um, Kwanzaa night bike ride on Kuchichagalia night, which is the second night of Kwanzaa, December 27th. We are partnering with um, Get Up and Ride NOLA and Sisters on Wheels bike clubs. We will be stopping at the Bayou Street uh, corridor, which is a historically Black business space. Um, um, it is located in the seventh ward, uh, community book center is right there. It, that is one of the, um, hubs in the new Orleans community, um, and has been there for so many years. Uh, we are part, a part of the new Orleans Kwanzaa coalition planning. And so they will also be having a, uh, celebration at six o'clock at the Caillou center, which is right next to community center all on Bayou road. We're speaking with Shakrani Gray, the African-American Research Collection Equity and Inclusion Librarian at the New Orleans Public Library about Kwanzaa. Now, Shakrani, I know also that your team at the African-American Resource Center at the library has put together a collection of Kwanzaa books, a book list, I should say. Uh, what are some of the books that you recommend? So we have a list of books that if you go to our website, 
um, you can click on. We have a whole lot of more books than what I'm going to say. Um, but two of the books that I want to highlight, one is uh, The Complete Kwanzaa, Celebrating Our Cultural Harvest by Dorothy Winbush. And this is a good book for anyone who's new to Kwanzaa and they're trying to, you know, I, I talk to people and they say, you know, I want to celebrate Kwanzaa, but I don't know how. So, you know, this book really lays out what are the, what's the history of Kwanzaa? What are the symbols? Why are you putting this on? Why are you setting it up this way? And then going through each day, what the ritual, quote unquote, ritual of Kwanzaa is. So that's like, geared towards adults. And then if you wanted to share the holiday um, with your children, and, and that's like the biggest highlight of Kwanzaa, it is children oriented. Um, so we have the Children's Book of Kwanzaa, A Guide to Celebrating the Holiday by Dolores Johnson. And so again, this is breaking down the story of Kwanzaa and the traditions for you to share with your children. It's good for a little story time. So um, you can go to nolalibrary.org and find the African-American resource uh, collection. And if you click on that, you'll see just like a whole list of books that you can use. All right. Well, for anyone who attends any of the events or reads any of these books, what, what are the main things you hope they learn about the holiday? First of all, um, I think just the self-validation that you get from celebrating something that highlights your own history and your own connection to a land base. You know, we, we, we as African-Americans, it's hard, you know, sometimes it can be hard here in the United States, you know, um, and so it's good to to collectively celebrate something that has you as the center. And the other thing that I would like to mention is that the, the New Orleans Kwanzaa Coalition has been celebrating in New Orleans for over 30 years. So if you are interested in celebrating Kwanzaa with the community, even if you just want to go and see what it what it's about, you don't have to do anything, just participate. So there are many events, there are family events, many of them have, you know, uh like conversations with prominent community members. We have African dance groups. We have poets. So it's just a plethora of celebration of just Blackness. <laughs> Shukrani Gray, the African-American Resource Collection, Equity and Inclusion Librarian at the New Orleans Public Library. Shukrani, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Look at my king all dressed in red. I go, Hanukkah began last night, and as Jewish people in Louisiana and around the world gather to celebrate the Festival of Lights, we thought we'd learn a bit more about some of the Hanukkah events available to the public. Louisiana Considered's Alana Schreiber spoke with Katrin Glado, Senior Director of Marketing and Communications for the Jewish Federation of New Orleans, to learn more. Katrin, Hanukkah began last night, and I know there was already an event right on the Mississippi River to celebrate the start of the holiday. Tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. Last night was Chabad's Hanukkah at the Riverwalk, which is a more than 30-year tradition of the largest menorah in Louisiana, right on the Mississippi River. It featured crafts, music, dancing, 
uh, free latkes, which what's better than a, you know, a hot latka on a cold, windy night. And it, you know, there was face painting. It's a really family centric event that Chabad's been hosting for, you know, more than three decades. That does sound pretty nice. Well, of course, Hanukkah isn't just one night, it's eight nights. And I know that there's already another event happening tonight with a pretty fun name. What's going on? Tonight is Southern Fried Hanukkah at the Uptown JCC. The JCC is truly a community center for all of New Orleans, whether or not you're Jewish. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of their members are not Jewish. And so tonight at 530, uh, Southern Fried Hanukkah is going to welcome a yeshiva acapella group called 613, along with a fried chicken and latke dinner. There is currently a wait list, but if you're interested in this free festive event, give the Uptown JCC a call. Sounds very Hanukkah and very New Orleans. Well, I also saw something coming up about a chocolate Hanukkah workshop. What's up with that? Well, once again, uh, this is a Chabad event. Uh, they are hosting a Hanukkah um, chocolate workshop where you will learn how to make your own uh, chocolate confectionery gifts. And you will enjoy a wine bar, uh, menorah lighting, fire up the shamash, have a little bit of of fun and celebration at Hanukkah because it's such a joyful holiday. That's actually tomorrow night at the Batesh family Chabad house on Ferret street. And that's going to be, it's just, it's a really wonderful event. Of course, there's also the mobile menorah parade coming up. I mean, that sounds like a really fun time. What can you tell me about that? Absolutely. So, you know, the amazing thing about new Orleans is that, you know, we have about 12,000 Jews in New Orleans, so probably a little more than that. And we're a deeply pluralistic community. So even Chabad gets in on celebrating and bringing the joy of, of Jewish celebration to the wider New Orleans community. So the Car Menorah Parade is going to start at the same Uptown Chabad house on Ferret, and it's going to wind all the way to the French Quarter. And Honestly, what's not to love about menorahs on cars at night in New Orleans? That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, all of these events, they're centered around Hanukkah, but they also feel so New Orleans. They're colorful, they're quirky, there's parades, there's Southern fried chicken. They're open to everyone, not just Jewish people. So do you see these events as sort of highlighting the intersection between Jewish traditions and New Orleans culture? Absolutely. You know, the thing that's really important to know about New Orleans as a pluralistic community is that outside of the Orthodox community, more than 60% of the non-Orthodox community has an interfaith relationship. So you see a lot of different faith traditions kind of colliding together in this really uniquely New Orleans identity. And so that's, you know, we actually, we hold, the Federation has an interfaith center so that people can kind of have a safe space to explore Judaism without judgment or, you know, pushing people into a specific direction. And we had our events this weekend. But when I look at our Hanukkah events calendar in New Orleans, it's not just uniquely New Orleans in its absolute celebration of joy, but it's also uniquely New Orleans in this, in this understanding that this is a really eclectic and diverse community, and all of our traditions kind of collide into one big melting pot. Katrin Glado is the Senior Director of Marketing and Communications for the Jewish Federation of New Orleans. Thanks so much for joining us, and happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Hug some 
From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest, Shukrani Gray, the African-American Resource Collection, Equity and Inclusion Librarian at the New Orleans Public Library, and Katrin Glado, Senior Director of Marketing and Communications for the Jewish Federation of New Orleans. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, our digital editor, Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.